Today we are in Luke 24 and we move from the discovery of the empty tomb to the appearances of Jesus. That's what we're looking at today. And the title of the message is A Journey from Disbelief to Belief. And we find two disciples who have learned that the tomb is empty on the morning that Jesus rose from the dead and decide that they're going to go home. They're like over, they don't have any evidence at this point of their own, but they've heard some people say the tomb is empty and they leave to go back to Emmaus. So these are the two disciples that are on the Emmaus road. According to the Barna group, they did a study in July of 2017 among Christians on crisis in faith. And what we find is that these, these two disciples are leaving and that they're going through a crisis. They no longer believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They no longer hope in the Messiah. And they go through the process of finding their hope again. So the Barna Group did a study among Christians and crisis in faith. And here's what they found. 26% of the Christians that they interviewed were going through a crisis of faith. In fact, they went so much as to say in their study that at any one point or time, 26% of Christians are having a crisis of faith. That would mean that as I look out at you today, that 26% of you are facing some kind of crisis. It might be a crisis of information. Maybe it's a crisis of just not believing. It may be a crisis of something that happened to you. There may have been a tragedy in your life. And, and, and you say something like, if God would allow this to happen to me, then I'm no longer going to believe him. These are the kind of things that lead to those kind of crises. They also found that 39% of Christians had been through a crisis. Now that's a pretty big number. 39% had already worked their way through a crisis. 26% were in a crisis. So out of, the Christ, out of Christians in general, almost everyone has had one. In fact, they went on to say that 35% have never had one. And I want to say that if you're one of the part of that 35% that has never had one, and it goes on to say and is never going to have one, then I'm jealous of you. Because I've had two. Uh, I've had two crises of faith. And the first one uh, was when I was very young, 16 or 17 years old. I had been taught that the Word of God was without error in any way, shape, or form. That, that you, you, you would study through it, you would never find any error in it. I had found a significant variant in the King James Version. I had never thought out the fact that there's King James, there's NIV, there's the ESV. There's all of these different translations that handle things differently. And I found a variant and didn't know it was a variant. had no idea as a teenager it was called a variant. Now I do. But I didn't know then. I'd found a variant and I went to my pastor and I showed him. It was a significant variant, by the way. And I'll explain to you the difference between a variant and a significant variant in a moment. But um, I showed him it. And this is my, in the United Methodist Church. And he looked at it and he said, well, these are two different cases. These are two different accounts in the scriptures. So I went back home. I, I didn't really buy that, by the way, when he said it. And I went back home and uh, I looked it up and they were the same. It's the, it, one of them's in Kings and one of them's in Chronicles. And it's going through the same history spot. The same thing happened before it and afterwards. It was obvious to me as a 17-year-old that I was being handed a ham sandwich here. That I was being told something that wasn't true and quickly trying to cover it up and that led me into a crisis of faith. I began to wonder, can I trust anything that the Bible says? If this particular, there's a variant that's here. Now, what that led me to was a book by a man by the name of Neil Lightfoot. 
Now, the reason I chuckle when I say that is because in last night's study, I said it was a book that I read by Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> That's a different person. It was a different person altogether. He said something about the Fitzgerald, right? That's Gordon Lightfoot. Um, Neil Lightfoot is someone altogether different. But I'll tell you what, as soon as I was done, I went down to greet people last night, I found out I made that mistake. I'll tell you what, people are not shy in letting you know Gordon Lightfoot did not write the book, How We Got the Bible. But what Neil, Neil Lightfoot said was that he talked about textual criticism. And textual criticism is a science that's not a Christian science, by the way. It's, it's not something only applied to Scripture. It's applied to any manuscript. If you take a manuscript, either it's like a Homer or Aristotle or any other ancient writer that has manuscripts, they have to have a way of taking the various manuscripts, which rarely are any of them identical, comparing them and contrasting them to be able to come up with what was originally written. And they usually have a confidence level. Homer, for example, the Odyssey and the Iliad, he is about 60% sure. They'll say of the Bible, because we have 5,000 Greek manuscripts and 24,000 total manuscripts, that the Bible has a strong accuracy rating. Uh, one more example, and then I'll get into some more of that detail and we'll move on in our Bible study. Um, when I was young, a young pastor in my 20s, I was invited to go to the U of A to speak to a class. Now, I thought I'm just going to speak to the class about God, but when I get there, the professor introduces me. He says, we have here today from Calvary Chapel, uh, Robert Furrow. He's going to talk to you today about the uh, 10,000 uh, uh, variants, uh, 10,000 variants that there are in the Bible. That's how he introduced me. And I'm like, wish I would have known that before I came. I could have done a little bit of work on it, but I did have knowledge about it. So I introduced my section this way. Your professor said that there were 10,000 variants in the Bible, but I want you to know there are hundreds of thousands. Instead of saying there are none, there are hundreds of thousands. But going over the evidence of these variants in the different manuscripts, most of them are spelling errors. Most of them are words put in the wrong order. And even critics of the Bible will say that, that the vast majority of the variants, 99% of them, are obvious mistakes that can be easily seen. If so, if you read, we're talking about the Emmaus Road today in our study. If there were uh, 4,900 manuscripts that said Emmaus Road and 100 that said the road to Jericho, you would easily be able to tell which was the right variant or wrong variant. Now, every once in a while, you come to a significant variant that changes the actual text. Now, even critics will say that there's no variant that changes anything that the Bible teaches. Anything that talks about doctrine or theology, there's no variant that does that. But every once in a while, you come to a variant that is a significant variant. That's what I had found. It was a battle where one of them said in Kings, 47,000 were killed, and the other one said 74,000 were killed. It was obviously wrong. It's a significant variant. The question you would ask on a significant variant is, does it change anything about God's word? Does it change anything about when the battle happened, who was in the battle, all of those things. All it means is that the Bible did not float down with a little ribbon hanging from it from heaven into your lap. But God used people in human terms to get his word to us. Now that's one of the crises that I went through. I thought I'd share that with you. I was, went through another one as well that I won't share right now. I will at some other point. But what I tell, will tell you about that crisis is that God came and got me. The Bible says he'll leave the 99 and he'll go after the one. God could have left me away from him, but God came and got me 
And I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that today. So what we find here are two disciples. They're distraught. Their faith has been crushed. Jesus has not met their expectations. That often leads to a crisis in faith. You expect one thing from God, but something else happens. And a lot of times that's not God's fault. That's not the Bible's fault. The Bible says if you're going to be a Christian, God's going to test you. Uh, Peter said, don't be surprised that fiery trials come upon you. And some preacher says, if you give your life to Jesus, you won't have any more difficulties. And you're like, sign me up. I don't want any more difficulties. If I become a Christian, my life is going to be great. I'm never going to have any troubles or problems. And then you, read, you hear Jesus say, in this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He doesn't say, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I'm going to help you not to have them. He says, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The Bible gives us the proper expectations as to what the Christian life is all about. These guys, as we're going to see, didn't have the proper expectations. Let's pick it up. So this is Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem. This is a couple of hour walk. These are disciples who had been following Jesus. They aren't the, any of the 12 disciples. One of them is Cleopas. It might be Cleopas and his wife. There are reasons some people believe that. There's a mention in John of the wife of Clopas being at the cross. And Clopas is one spelling or, or the way you would pronounce Cleopas. They're the same name, just pronounced differently. So maybe it's his wife. We don't know. We do know that one of them is Cleopas. And it takes about two hours if you're in shape. And I'm assuming these people who walked everywhere were in pretty good shape. So take a couple hours for them to go downhill from Jerusalem to Emmaus to their house. Now, while they're walking along the way, it says in verse 14, and they talked together of all the things which had happened, of the arrest of Jesus, of the suffering of Jesus, of his crucifixion, of his death, of his burial, and of the women finding the tomb empty. That's what they were talking about. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, this is the first appearance that we're going to be told about from the book of Luke. Suddenly, Jesus joins alongside of them, but they don't recognize him. And I do want to point out before we see why they didn't recognize him, that Jesus came to them in their crisis. He left the 99, he went after the one. Jesus says a little bit later on, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He didn't show his love for you by dying for you to leave you wallowing around in some kind of crisis of what you believe. But he will come to you. He will be there for you. And he joins these two disciples along the way. It says, but their eyes were restrained. Now that's all that we need to know. And they did not know him. So what does it say? Their eyes were restrained. So they didn't know. And I say that because anytime that we do, I do a study, I read over a course of a few days, different commentators on the passage of scripture. And so they're all talking. They all want to go into great detail about why they didn't recognize Jesus. Well, we have to understand that he'd been beaten for a whole night, that he had a beard ripped from his face, that he'd been crucified and that he had died. And it shouldn't be shocking to us that they wouldn't have recognized him. And it's like, go back to the text. The text tells us why they don't recognize him. Because God was restraining their eyes. 
Does God ever do that to us? Does God ever keep information from us? You know, the Bible says the secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us. And we live by faith, which means that one day we may know all the reasons things happen to us, but we don't know them all of the time. We have to trust him. Why? Probably for the same reason that you tell your three-year-old, trust me. You don't want to explain it to them. They're not going to get it anyway. So God may not want to explain it to us and we're probably not going to get it anyway. And so God is like, trust me, I've got you on this. Just do the things I'm telling you to do. So their eyes were restrained and they didn't know him. And then in verse 17 it says, and he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you are having with one another and you walk and are so sad? Now he knows the answer to this, but like any good teacher, he's asking questions. Jesus had done this throughout his ministry. An example of that is when he said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? He knew who people said that he was and they, they gave him a list. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so he drew out from them information by asking questions. And that's what good teachers do. And Jesus does that same exact thing here. Why, what are, what's this conversation you're having? And why are you so sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? Here he is, he's the one that happened to, right? What things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was, note the word was, now we get an idea of the crisis that they're in, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Note, they still see him as a prophet. They still see he was mighty in word and deed. They still see he affected the people, but he was a prophet. Why was? Because he's dead, at least in their eyes. Verse 20, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Note the word were, it's in the past tense. We were hoping. Their hope is now gone. This was the wrong expectations that they had about the Messiah. They believed the Messiah was going to come and rescue them from the Roman oppressors. That he was going to come, get rid of them, and then sit on the seat of David and rule. And the Bible does say the Messiah is going to do that, but that's going to be in the future. He had to take care of sin first. The first time he came, he came that he would take care of sin. We're told that in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus came in the book of Isaiah, that he would die for our iniquities. Yet he would see his days, which is a reference to the resurrection. He was going to die for the iniquities of mankind. He was going to be cut off from the earth. He was going to be buried with the wicked and he was going to see his days. All of that was foretold. But they weren't thinking of any of that. They were thinking we thought he was going to deliver us. When they saw the miracles, when they saw people risen from the dead, when they saw lepers healed, when they saw blind men who were born blind receiving their sight, they're thinking Jesus is going to deliver us. And then he dies. And their expectations are, are tragically dashed. The same thing happens to us when we have our expectations of Jesus as the self-help Jesus. The self-help Jesus is often taught. 
receive Jesus into your life. He's going to make your life better. Receive Jesus into your life. Give your life to him. And he's going to make sure no difficulties happen to you. It's going to be all, you know, a bunch of, of roses. It's going to be sunshine and unicorns and bowls of cherry. If you just give your life to Jesus. But then you read what the scriptures say. And it says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. What it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are to be living sacrifices. What does a living sacrifice do? You sacrifice something. You are now doing not what you want to do, but you're doing what he wants you to do. Don't consider it strange when fiery trials come upon you. Consider it joy when you encounter various trials. Our faith, more precious than gold, Peter said, when tested by fire. So God wants to test our faith, which become more precious than gold, but it's tested by fire. In other words, the Bible doesn't say, receive Jesus and you'll have no difficulties. If anything, it says the opposite. It's going to be more difficult to be a follower and a believer of Jesus. And you say, well, then why did I become a Christian? With wrong expectations, which is one of the reasons you'll probably have a crisis in faith. Because it's not about you sacrificing for Christ. It's about you wanting Jesus to be your co-pilot. I'm flying the plane, Jesus, and I don't want you to fly it. I want to fly it. But if anything goes wrong, Jesus take the wheel. <laughs> right? That's the idea. I don't want to. But, but really, the Bible teaches that God's flying the plane and you're in the back. You're going where he wants you to go. He has a plan for you. He has a destination for you. And you say, can I be in first class? No. All the way in the back. Get the, you get the seat by the bathroom, the one that stinks a little bit. That's, no, I'm kidding. I don't, know. I don't know where God puts you on the plane, all right? But I do know that this idea that Jesus will take the wheel when I get myself into trouble, that I'm flying my life, is not taught in Scripture anywhere. And that's one of the reasons they're in this crisis. Now, they had lost hope. The Bible says now there's faith, hope, and love. They said we were hoping that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. They had lost their hope. Now, faith is extremely important. Love is greater than any of them, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 13. However, it's hard to live without hope. If you're a hopeless person here today, if your life has taken a turn that's ugly and you have no hope, that's an awful place to be. There was an infamous study done at John Hopkins University by Kurt um, uh, Richard which is R-I-C-H-T-E-R. -E and I say it's an infamous study because this study was attacked for animal cruelty. I can imagine there are a lot of studies that have animal cruelty involved, but what he did in his study was drowned rats. He took rats and he drowned them and he timed how long it took for them to drown. The second step of his study was to take rats, put them in the tank, and then right before they died, when they got right to the very end, about ready to die, he rescued them. Brought them out, petted them, warmed them up, dried them off, put them in a little cage off to themselves. I'm not kidding either. He did that. He cared for the rats. He loved on the rats after he rescued them. And then about a week later, he put them back in the tank again. And he found out that a rat that had been rescued lasted several times longer than a rat that had not been rescued. What he found out was that when a rat had, rat had no hope, it drowned pretty quickly. But it could be up to three or four times longer. If it took a half hour for a rat to drown, it took a rat with hope, you know, two and a half hours to drown. 
That'll tell us the power of just having the hope that we might be rescued could be. Or we could put it this way, how devastating it is to live without hope. When you don't have any hope. Doctors talk about this. I don't know that there's been any good solid studies on people that have people around them in an illness who recover more because of the hope that they have. But I know I've talked to a lot of doctors who talk, I've talked to a couple of doctors, which in my mind equates to a lot. I've talked to a couple of doctors who have talked about when patients were alone during COVID, how hard it was to keep them in the right mindset for them to be able to recover. And that again is the idea of hope having hope. These had lost their hope, and this is their crisis, and it's a pretty heavy crisis. Now, the Bible tells us a lot of things about hope. The Bible tells us that faith and hope are connected. This is Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. So we have the hope of eternity, and now we live what God says because of the hope of living with him. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The Bible tells us that faith is when you hear God's word and do it. My, my best definition for faith that I think that, I, we, that we have is faith is believing God enough to do what he says. If you go, I believe in God, but I don't want to do what he says, I don't know that that's faith. But if you say, I'm going to do what he says because I trust him, then that's faith. Jeremiah 29, 11 God, this was written to Israel. And Israel, the nation of Israel has gone through a lot of difficulties. And they were promised that they were not going to be a nation, but that in the last days they would be a nation again. And the fact that Israel is a nation today, when they weren't a nation for almost 2,000 years, and the Bible said they wouldn't be, and then said they were going to be, is pretty significant. But here's the promise that God gave to the nation of Israel. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. If anyone needed to know that, it was the people of Israel that God was not going to let them go, that he would give them a future and a hope. And there they are in the land of Israel today. The Bible also tells us that God is the God of hope. This is Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy, peace, and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. If a little bit of hope can cause you to continue living in a struggle, what does abounding in hope do for us? And that's who we are as Christians. We are abounding in the hope that God has given us. Now let's get back to the account. These guys are still in crisis. We were hoping that he would deliver Israel. Then verse 22, yes, they continue on with their story. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. And they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Now we know that when they heard these women, we have already been told, they thought it seemed like, what was the words that they used there? They, they thought it seemed like, I can't remember, but they thought it seemed like fairy tales, like it wasn't true. And, and then verse 23 when they did not find the body, they came saying that he had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then verse 12. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not, uh, but him they did not see. Now what we know from the other gospels is that the women had seen Jesus, but these guys leave it out. 
Why do they leave it out? I just think it seems too far-fetched to them. They, they don't want to say, and they said they saw him. Or they put that out of their mind. Whatever it is, they don't bring it up. Then this stranger to them, because their eyes are restrained, gives them a subtle rebuke. And I want you to notice the way he deals with their crisis. Verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He says, you don't believe what the word of God says. You're slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he says, ought not the Christ have suffered these things and entered into his glory? Specifically, he's talking about all of the Old Testament passages that speak about his suffering and death and resurrection in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of them. Some rabbis believed that there were two messiahs, a suffering messiah and a glorious messiah, a ruling, reigning messiah, because they didn't know what to do with Isaiah 53 and Psalms 22 and other passages that spoke of his suffering and his death. And so then in verse 27, so beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I just want to make a few connections to their crisis. Number one, Jesus took them to the word of God. And I believe the answer to whatever crisis that you're facing can be found in rightly handling the word of God. Also, we often say, I'd love to hear this message. I wish Cleopas would have written us what Jesus said from Moses through the prophets. But do we really need that? We can go back to Moses. We can go through the prophets. Paul knew it. When Paul would take the gospel into a new city, it said that he would go to the synagogues and he would reason with them that Jesus was the Messiah according to the scriptures. Immediately, if I just start going off the top of my head, if I'm going to look at Moses, Moses talked about the Passover and Jesus is our Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb had to be killed and the blood had to be applied. Immediately, you can start to see the suffering connections, the brass, the brass serpent in the wilderness that had to be placed up for people to look at, to be able to be healed from the snake that they'd been bitten by. And Jesus said that he was that brass serpent, that if he be lifted up, all men would be drawn unto him. The, the suffering prophets in the book of Isaiah, that he was going to die for our iniquities, that he's going to be bruised for our, for our peace, so on and so forth. There's just so many, they start coming to mind. These are the things Jesus said to them. But he brought them back to the word of God so that they could get the proper expectations of what God wants from you. To me, these disciples are going to be much stronger afterwards than before. Before they have this expectation that isn't, isn't realized by them, but afterwards, they know the expectations that they are living in. Now, if you're in the middle of a crisis of faith, I have a couple of suggestions for you. Just like I discovered a book that helped me in learning how we got our Bible and that there were variants and how you looked at the different variants and what a significant variant and non-significant variant were and whether or not I could trust the scripture. There's a few books that you might want to pick up if you're struggling with whether or not the Bible is true, whether or not there's evidence for Christianity, whether or not God is there. The first one is Elise Strobel's A Case for Faith. Now, you may know of his movie, A Case for Christ, but this book is A Case for Faith. It's his first book. He was a journalist, I think for the Chicago, the Chicago Tribune, and his wife got saved, and it annoyed him, and he set out to disprove Christianity. But instead, he found evidence for it, 
and became a Christian, that's what a case for faith is all about. There's also Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, a very good book, but get the new revised edition with Sean McDowell. Sean McDowell is Josh McDowell's son. Sean McDowell is a professor and a, an apologist, and he did a great job in reworking some of his dad's stuff they, as a team together, and the new evidence that demands a verdict is very powerful. Uh, there's also, we also had Elisa Childers here with us a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night. She had a crisis of faith, and then she talks about the, 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 the things that she did within Scripture that led her to trust the Word of God, and that book is called Another Gospel. It's really, as, as I look at it, it's really a journey through a crisis of faith. And if you're in a crisis, this may be one of the best books for you. She's a great writer, and she works her way through the crisis of faith. Now, all of these books you can get in audio as well. You can go to audible.com, and you can get them. You can listen to them while you're working out, whatever it is that you're doing, all right? So let's go back to our story. So these guys now, um, they, uh, they hear Jesus tell them about all the, the prophets and all the things that had foretold what he was going to go through. It says, Then they drew near the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. So Jesus gets to the, to the house where they're at, and he's like, Okay, guys, see you later. And he indicates that he wants to go by. Now, some have said Jesus is being deceptive here by doing so, which to me just gets silly. Jesus is waiting for them to invite him in. Jesus knew they would invite him in. Jesus wants the invitation. And I believe Jesus wants the invitation from you as well. He wants you to say, I want you in my life. The Gadareans, remember the Gadareans? They had, had a man delivered from a legion of demons. When the Gadareans saw the man sitting in his right mind, clothed, they asked Jesus to leave. Why, why did they ask Jesus to leave? We don't even know. But you know what it says the very next verse? So Jesus got in the boat and left. If you don't want Jesus, he's not going to force his way into your life. He's given you choice. And you can say, I want you in my life. And so what happens? He indicates that he would go further. Verse 29, but they constrained him saying, abide with us. For it was toward evening and the day was far spent. And he went and he stayed with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. Which again, cracks me up. It's like, Jesus, what, go, go, go. where'd he go? It's gone. Verse 32, and they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while we ta he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scripture to us? And this is what I hope that the Scripture does. When we see Scripture connecting in the proper way, properly uh, interpreted and applied in a correct way, it, gets us, it causes us to be excited. That's all that was happening to them. They were hearing of the Messiah suffering and seeing it connect to Jesus and their hearts burned within them as they got excited about the Word of God. And that's my prayer for us regularly, by the way that we would somehow see the Word of God as it is applied and be excited about it. So it says in verse 33, So they arose that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven of those who were with them all gathered together. Now, if you have exciting news to give, don't you rehearse what you're going to say when you see somebody with your exciting news? That's what I do. Now, they got this whole thing re rehearsed, but they burst into the room, and there's the eleven of them, and what, what happens? It says, these 11 saying, the Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. They preempted their news. 
They were like, we want to, and they're like, what do you mean you've seen him? And they told them the things that had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And I don't have time to break down the breaking of bread, but it's not communion, okay? Some have come to this passage and gone, well, he's known in the breaking of bread, so the more you take communion, the more you know him. That's a kind of a form of Gnosticism, gnosko, knowledge. I learn knowledge by doing this. That's not biblical. The breaking of bread here is fellowship. He's not taking communion with them. He's having a meal with them. The meal is fellowship. The more we fellowship with Christ, the more we walk with him, the more we know him. It's not a supernatural knowledge. It's the knowledge of truly spending time with Christ. So it goes on, verse 36. And as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst with them and said, peace to you. So now we have the, the, the third appearance of Jesus to them. He's appeared to Simon. He's appeared to the two disciples by the road. Now he appears in the midst of them and he says, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and they supposed that they had seen a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? All of them were facing doubts. And Jesus knows that we go through doubts. He said, behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But why they still, but why they still did not believe for joy, so it takes a while, and marveled, he said to them, do you have any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. So he's going to this extreme measure to show them that he is real, that he can be trusted. And I want to suggest that he has already gone to the extreme measure by giving us prophecy in the Old Testament, by the, found, the evidence of the foundation of the church. How did the church start so quickly? And how did enemies of the gospel become Christians and become part of that movement? All of these are overwhelming evidence that if we really want to know what it is, if we're really struggling, the answers are there for each one of us. Now, in closing, I just have one question. Would you like to invite Christ into your life today? And I'm not just asking you if you're a non-believer, but when's the last time that you have said, Lord, I want you in my life. I want you moving. I want you here. I want to know you. I don't want to live for myself, but I want to live for you. They invited him in to stay the night and have a meal. May we invite Christ into our lives at every aspect. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you as we take time to look at these disciples and what they were going through and the crisis that they were facing because they had the wrong expectations and they didn't know your word. They just didn't know it. And Lord, for many Christians who go through crisis for various reasons, Lord, I pray that you too would meet us in the midst of that and that we would find out what your word says and look at the evidence. Lord, we love that you encourage them not just by revealing yourself to them, but by showing them the evidence that was in Scripture already. What a great thing. We pray that we would see that in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.